Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Las Vegas in the 1970s was the site of bombings and murders, but not all of this mayhem was linked to the mafia. In the fall of 1975, a labor dispute between the Culinary Union Local 226 and several off-strip restaurants escalated into violence. This ultimately resulted in the head of the Culinary Union learning a very valuable lesson. Always pay your hitman. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with MayhemInTheDesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. The service industry has fueled the economy of Las Vegas since the first resort casinos started popping up along the Strip way back in 1946. It was during this transformative time that Al Bramlett, a 29-year-old bartender and business agent for the Culinary Union local in Los Angeles, made his way out to the small desert town of Las Vegas. He went there with the intention of organizing the growing legion of cooks, waiters, and bartenders working in the burgeoning casino industry. Bramlett had never stopped hustling for a better station in life. He'd been at it since his early days when he abandoned life as a farm boy in the Midwest to join the Navy during World War II. And that ambitious drive picked up pace after arriving in America's newfound gambling capital. Bramlett made immediate traction in his goal to transform the service employees laboring in kitchens and restaurants who were scattered across the city into a formidable bargaining force that could meet casino owners on equal footing. By 1953, Bramlett had been elected head of the Las Vegas local 226 of the Culinary Union. Early on, the union boss earned a reputation for tough tactics on behalf of his members. For example, in 1956, when a hotel was late making payroll, Bramlett obtained a writ of garnishment and had sheriff's deputies impound the casino's cash. Payroll was made within 40 minutes of the seizure. (gasps) 
At the same time Bramlett increased the culinary union's power, he also took steps to ensure his control over the union would remain undisturbed. He limited eligibility in elections for the secretary-treasurer position, the de facto head position of the union, to only include members of the executive committee, each of which had been handpicked by Bramlett. In fact, Bramlett faced only one genuinely contested election for secretary-treasurer. <laughs> In 1963, Luther Shue, who'd been appointed to the position of union job dispatcher by Bramlett himself, made an attempt to unseat his former patron. Not only did Shue lose the election, but he was also promptly forced out of his position as job dispatcher by Bramlett, quote, for the best interests of the union. As the local 226 under Bramlett's leadership continued to grow, the union did not shy away from aggressive tactics in order to pursue their members' interests. Among the more memorable of these came in March of 1976, when a massive strike led by the culinary union saw thousands of cooks, waiters, and dishwashers walk off their jobs. They refused to return to work until the heads of the major strip resorts agreed to a wage increase. The properties went dark as casinos, restaurants, and shows temporarily closed. The 76 strike even saw the occasional flare-up of violence. During the two-week-long strike, scuffles broke out along the picket lines and police arrested dozens of union members. These arrests often occurred when strikers blocking the roads caused traffic to slow to a stop along the strip. Meanwhile, throughout almost every day of the ordeal, Al Bramlett slowly rolled by the picket lines in his silver Cadillac, bearing a giant grin at the show of muscle from the organization he'd been so instrumental in building. The Nevada Resort Association, the trade group representing the holdout casino owners, took out advertisements in the local newspapers trying to sway public opinion against the union, claiming union negotiators were refusing to bargain in good faith. But the union held strong, with 22,000 members drawing attention to what they argued were reasonable demands of the casino owners. Amidst this frenetic back and forth between labor and management to win the battle for the public's heart and mind, another unexpected labor action broke out. Housekeepers seeking to draw attention to their efforts to become part of Local 226 conducted a strike at several motels. The Nevada Resort Association ultimately caved and agreed to almost all of the culinary union's demands as part of a four-year contract. The union's strike was a tough but legal negotiating tactic that won its members substantial concessions from the casino owners. But Al Bramlett didn't always rely on legal methods of negotiation when pursuing the union's interests. The culinary union had been engaged in years of informational picketing outside of several off-strip gourmet restaurants and taverns in an effort to organize their employees. In some cases, such as with the high-end restaurant The Alpine Village Inn, the union had been picketing for almost 20 years. Union leadership's frustration over the inability to bring these restaurants into the fold was compounded when employees at several member restaurants voted to decertify the union or to form independent bargaining units, thus weakening the culinary union's power. The first sign of violence came in September of 1975, when a small but powerful bomb detonated inside an employee locker behind the Alpine Village Inn. Police later discovered another bundle of high explosives, along with two smoke canisters attached to the restaurant's air conditioning. Investigators believed the second bomb was intended to send smoke through the shattered air ducts and into the dining area. Just three months later, the Alpine Village Inn was struck again. 
It happened on the night of December 20th, 1975. Over 300 patrons and 70 staff were inside the building when a bomb tore through the roof of the restaurant near the kitchen, leaving a hole over two feet in diameter. 30 seconds later, a second bomb ignited on the roof, sending more debris into the kitchen area. Despite the explosions causing a fire to break out, everyone inside the restaurant was able to make an orderly exit without injury. The lack of loss of life was miraculous, though. Investigators determined that one of the two bombs had nearly ruptured a gas line, which would have instantly reduced the entire building to rubble. Las Vegas didn't have long to recover, though. Less than a month later, on January 12, 1976, another sudden explosion thundered through the pre-dawn air about a mile west of downtown. The target of this blast was David's Place, a gourmet restaurant that had long resisted efforts at unionization. Officers having a coffee a few blocks away thought the sound of the blast was their waitress dropping a pile of dishes. When the officers realized what the sound was, they rushed to the scene of the bombing, where they encountered thick white smoke billowing across Charleston Boulevard. David's place was left in ruins. In fact, the explosion from the bomb was so powerful, it sent a light fixture at a nearby bank careening to the floor, it shattered windows in a half dozen other buildings, and several people living in a residential facility for the elderly next door to the restaurant were injured by flying glass. Police investigators determined that the blast had been caused by high explosives left at the rear of the gutted restaurant. No suspects were arrested in connection with the bombings, and a spokesman for the culinary union denied any involvement with the blast, even going so far as to offer the organization support for the investigation. The owner of David's Place did rebuild the restaurant, and the union pickets returned immediately following the grand reopening. Things in Las Vegas remained quiet, for the next year. It was the night of January 24th, 1977, and the culprits behind the previous bombings engaged in an extremely dangerous escalation. Raymond Kraber, a security guard patrolling the parking lot outside of the Village Pub, another non-union restaurant located a few blocks east of the Strip, noticed a puddle of gasoline beneath a Jeep parked near the building. Upon closer inspection, the security guards saw there was a steady drip of gas coming from beneath the vehicle. With his suspicions aroused, the guard called the police. The dispatcher assumed this was a call for a routine gas wash, and the fire department was sent out to hose down the area. But the responding firefighters inspecting the Jeep noticed a barrel with tubing connected to it in the rear of the vehicle and realized this was no routine call. The bomb squad was called out, and they determined that they were dealing with a very sophisticated device. The barrel in the rear of the Jeep contained about 350 pounds of gasoline, with a slow drip from the barrel fed via a tube. This allowed the gas to saturate the interior of the vehicle and the ground beneath it, thus creating the perfect conditions for a rapid ignition. Meanwhile, the unlocked doors of the Jeep had been rigged to a flash detonator so that the first unsuspecting person to open the door would trigger a massive explosion. As the bomb squad and firefighters worked to defuse the bomb at the village pub, a call came in from another guard working security at another non-union restaurant, the Starboard Tack. 
This guard had spotted a suspicious Jeep in the parking lot, also with gasoline dripping from the undercarriage. First responders arriving at that location determined they were dealing with a device identical to the one left outside the village pub. Luckily, the only injury caused by the improvised explosive devices was to Fire Marshal Tom Huddleston. He suffered burns when an ignition device he was removing from a Jeep went off in his hands and set his shirt on fire. Huddleston likely wouldn't have survived had the device detonated just a few moments earlier while it was being removed from the Jeep. He later commented, I lost a good shirt, but it makes you appreciate all the small things in life. The bombings terrorizing these non-union restaurants across Las Vegas had allegedly been ordered by Al Bramlett as an extra-legal means of increasing his union's bargaining power. Tom and Granby Hanley, a father-son hitman team whose handiwork by this point had already left a bloody trail across Las Vegas, were hired to place the bombs. When Bramlett first hired the duo to carry out the bombings, Granby Hanley used a connection at a local mining company to make an under-the-table purchase of several hundred pounds of high explosive. Bramlett used money from the union fund to pay for the bombs with the payments made to Oasis Air Conditioning, a front company run by Tom Hanley. The relationship between the Hanleys and Bramlett had run along smoothly until the failed twin bombings at the Village Pub and the Starboard Tack. Bramlett had agreed to pay a total of $17,000 for the two bombings, $7,000 up front and the rest due upon completion of the job. But after the bombs failed to go off, Bramlett refused to pay the remaining $10,000 to the Hanleys. The Hanleys were not ones to be stiffed on money they felt they were owed. From their perspective, they had taken the risk to build and place the bombs. It wasn't their fault both security guards decided to call the cops instead of inspecting further and triggering the devices. And it would set a bad example in their line of work to allow a contract to go unpaid. But while the Hanleys wanted to settle their score with Bramlett, they also wanted to avoid unnecessary risks to their own safety. It was widely known that Bramlett always carried a 357 Magnum revolver in case one of his many enemies tried to do him harm. It would be preferable to deal with Bramlett without worrying about him shooting back. So the Hanleys hatched a plan to confront the Union boss at the one place they knew for sure he would be unarmed. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Returning from a union business trip to Reno, Al Bramlett flew into McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas on the afternoon of February 24, 1977. 
The Hanleys knew that Bramlett would be unarmed at the airport. A spat of skyjackings in the early 70s had resulted in some of the first bans on weapons aboard aircraft. Bramlett disembarked from his plane shortly before 4.30 p.m. and called his daughter from a payphone to tell her he'd be home in about 30 minutes. He then joined dozens of other travelers making their way through the terminal towards the airport exits. Bramlett was jarred from his present concerns when he spotted two familiar faces waiting for him among the crowd. The Hanleys gave Bramlett a wave and approached. Bramlett's heart sank as the reality set in that he had nowhere to run. He briefly entertained some hope that he might be able to sort things out with his former associates. Tom Hanley looked at Bramlett and said, Let's go for a ride, Al. The pair had often crossed paths with each other over the past few decades. Beginning in the 1950s, Hanley had served as head of the local sheet metal workers union for several years. As such, the two union bosses' interests had often aligned over the decades, but not today. Al Bramlett walked with the Hanleys out of the airport and into a nearby parking garage. The trio made their way to a van that was occupied by Clem Vaughn, another former associate of Hanley's from his days running the Sheet Metal Workers Union. Bramlett was handcuffed and gagged in the back of the van before the vehicle exited the parking garage. The van took a few turns before finding its way to Blue Diamond Road. And from there, as the sun began to set, the van continued on its journey into the wide open desert. Once they were well outside the Vegas city limits, the Hanleys made a stop at one of the few signs of civilization in the middle of the desert, an isolated payphone. Bramlett was ordered out of the van and instructed to call an executive he knew at the Desert Inn Casino. He was told to demand $10,000 for a loan and gave instructions for the money to be delivered to the Horseshoe Casino in downtown Vegas. Bramlett complied upon being assured by his kidnappers that he'd be released upon paying the balance owed for the bombings. It's uncertain whether the Hanleys ever picked up the $10,000, since they were known to perform some of horseshoe owner Benny Binion's more unsavory work around Vegas. But what is known is that the Hanleys did not keep their promise to release Bramlett. He was placed back in the rear of the van, and the four men continued their voyage into the dark desert night. The van made its final stop down a bumpy, isolated desert road near Mount Potosi. Bramlett was taken from the back of the vehicle and his restraints removed. Tom Hanley exited the vehicle and took out a flask of whiskey. After taking a swig, he asked his old associate, You want some, Al? I think I could use a drink, Bramlett replied. He accepted the flask and took a swig as Tom Hanley took a few steps in the opposite direction. Hanley then pulled a small caliber revolver from his pocket and fired a single shot into the back of Al Bramlett's head, and the Union boss collapsed to the ground. Hanley then emptied the rest of the revolver into Bramlett before the other men dragged the body a few yards away into a waiting shallow grave, hastily covering the corpse with rocks and debris. 
The disappearance of Al Bramlett from McCarran Airport quickly became national news. After all, it had been less than two years since another powerful union boss had suddenly gone missing without a trace. But unlike Jimmy Hoffa, the mystery surrounding Bramlett would not last long. On the morning of March 18, 1977, a couple hiking a trail near Mount Potosi saw something unusual beneath a pile of rocks. Upon removing a few of the rocks, the couple discovered the body of Al Bramlett. Police investigators arrived and secured what evidence they could from the murder scene. But Bramlett's killers had been careful to avoid leaving potential clues, and the elements had already limited the amount of evidence that could be gained from Bramlett's corpse. Police found themselves at a dead end in their hunt for suspects in the murder until they received an unlikely break. An anonymous tipster contacted the police in the weeks after Bramlett went missing. The tipster ultimately became a confidential informant that revealed crucial details of the crime to investigators. This informant could offer such insights because he was the fourth man present the night of the Bramlett slaying. It was Clem Vaughn. Though the Hanleys skipped town after murdering Bramlett, they were eventually arrested for the killing. The Hanleys ended up cutting a deal with federal prosecutors who'd been investigating the leadership of the local 226, including their role in the restaurant bombings of 1975 through to 1977. In exchange for the Hanleys pleading guilty to the Bramlett murder, prosecutors agreed to allow the pair to serve their life sentences for the crime at a federal prison in San Diego rather than Nevada State Prison in Carson City, where the hitmen feared for their lives. The Hanleys were later star witnesses during the federal racketeering trial of several leaders of the local 226, including Bramlett's successor as union president, Ben Schmouty. The officials were accused of embezzling union funds and orchestrating the restaurant bombings. Schmouty was ultimately acquitted of the charges against him after the presiding judge, Harry Claiborne, found prosecutors had failed to present sufficient evidence linking the union boss to the crimes. However, as a sign of the rampant corruption plaguing Las Vegas at that time, the federal judge presiding over the Schmouty trial would later go on to be one of only a handful of federal judges in history to be impeached and removed from office. Harry Claiborne was tried in the U.S. Senate after being convicted of tax evasion. Claiborne's crimes ended up landing the former judge in prison for 17 months. And while Schmouty dodged a bullet during his 1979 racketeering trial, he was later convicted of fraud for working with organized crime outfits to obtain kickbacks from a union-funded health insurance plan. Federal investigations continued into the Culinary Union Local 226 after Schmouty's conviction, including into the role of the parent union's involvement with mob figures in Chicago. The Culinary Union ultimately entered into a consent decree under the supervision of a federal court to ensure transparency into the Union's operations. Al Bramlett grew the Culinary Union in Las Vegas from 1,500 members in 1953 to 24,000 members by the time of his murder in 1977. Today, the Culinary Union represents roughly 60,000 members, becoming the largest union in the state of Nevada. And the Culinary Union has long since moved past the corrupt days of Al Bramlett and Ben Schmouty to become one of the most powerful and effective unions in the United States. To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit MayhemInTheDesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. 
Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited, and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.